This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this program known as The Takeout. Politics, policy, a little bit of pop culture. We take our topics seriously, but we never take ourselves too seriously. Again, welcome to my dining room, my Zoom room. Ten months going now. I can work here. And do my job from the safety of my home. And when I go into my office, I am tested every single day. That makes me a highly advantaged worker in America. And I say in the show almost every time I open it up, that puts me in a privileged category. I understand that. I sympathize with those who are not so positioned in this economy, who have to work on the front lines, who may not have access to rapid testing. All of that is part and parcel of our conversation today because it's going to be about the current economics of our country and the future economics of the country. Our special guest, Jared Bernstein, who is the one of the members of the President Biden's Council of Economic Advisors. Jared, good to see you. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So happy to be with you today. So we're recording this in the morning of February 18th. The show will be out tomorrow. Hours ago, as you well know, Jared, the jobless claims numbers were released. First time, unemployment claims, 861,000. 100,000 more than what experts were predicting. First and foremost, your reaction to that number, what does it say about the current state and the current trajectory of the U.S. economy? That's a great, important question with a simple answer, uh, at least initially. The initial simple answer to that is this is why we need the president's American Rescue Plan. Uh, If you look at not just one week of data, but go back and look at the last three months of jobs data, you see a job market where growth is essentially stalled. I think the number is less than 30,000 jobs per month over the past three months. That's essentially nothing in a labor market with 160 million people in it. Uh, We have 10 million people unemployed. We have 4 million people who have been unemployed for at least six months. That's a hugely elevated number of people stuck in long-term unemployment. This job market continues to be fraught with damage from the ongoing pandemic. The the American Rescue Plan is calibrated to be of a magnitude to finally deal this COVID-19 virus, the blow that hasn't occurred yet, and introduce a robust and inclusive economic recovery that has thus far uh, really failed to launch. So another thing that people can apply for now, and this is a brand new outgrowth of pandemic assistance, is the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program. That's for gig workers and those who are self-employed, who previously were not even 
allowed to apply for some kind of assistance. 516,299 in the last week, which means first-time claims 1.4 million across the economy. And I put those two numbers together because that is part of this evolving economy we currently live in, true? Very much true. Uh, By the way, we've had 48 weeks in a row of these massively elevated uh, unemployment claims. And they are uh, indicative of the job market I described, which, by the way, in your opening, you captured in a very, very important way that I don't want to slip by, which is that for many of us, we've never missed a paycheck. Uh, But that doesn't describe a lot of folks on the bottom leg of the K, if you will, of this K-shaped recovery. And of course, these are folks disproportionately represented in unemployment. Now, one of the trends we know about, long-term trend in American labor market, is this thing that I think of as an increasing arm's length length distance between workers and their employers. Let me say that again. The distance between workers and their employers has increased in terms of that relationship so that somebody can be working for a contractor and a subcontractor and therefore not under the umbrella of unemployment insurance. Somebody can be a gig worker who picks up a little bit of work here and there. Um, Someone can be a freelance worker. Those kinds of relationships have increased, but our unemployment insurance system wasn't really constructed to cover them. In a very early discussion I had with the president, he wasn't president yet then, this is one of the first things he asked about. How are we going to cover these workers? And thankfully, uh, I think Congress worked to help build this part of the system up uh, thus far, but it's it's temporary. It needs to be part of the more permanent kind of unemployment insurance system as 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 that system evolves to meet changes in the job market. I want to ask you about where you think things currently stand with the American Rescue Plan. When do you believe? When does the president expect it to be through Congress and signable? So. If you really want a date, you probably shouldn't talk to an economist, even one who works for the White House. That's much more of our political legislative team. What I can tell you is that the urgency with which the president is pursuing uh, this legislation with Congress uh, is evident in his uh, comments he makes every day and in the work that's ongoing. Uh, As we speak, uh, I know for a fact that the House of Representatives is writing up parts of this bill. You know, I I think people may not, you know, uh, know, I see no reason why they should, how these things kind of take place. So in a case like this, and I was here for the Great Recession back in 2008-09, I mean, you were too, so I've seen this happen a few times. The White House and our economics team and working with uh, all the other teams in the White House, um, come up with a set of ideas, but we don't write the legislation. Congress does that. And so that's what's happening now. I think probably a key thing to recognize is that the December fiscal plan, which passed in December, it was late in getting there, but it was an important part of this fiscal response, that some of the very important aspects of that uh, uh, end fade out uh, by mid-March. So we have a a deadline that we have to uh, be mindful of, whether it's unemployment insurance, mortgage forbearance, eviction forbearance, those kinds of things have to be uh, extended quickly to make sure that the American people and businesses don't suffer one of these air pockets, another lapse in the relief. And that's what President Biden is working for uh, with great intensity right now. Mid-March. All right. You said something a moment ago, and Jared, one of the things I love to do on this program is help people conceptualize things that we talk about here a lot in Washington, but they may not have the firmest grasp of. So 
In economic terms, you probably have heard of a U-shaped recovery, which is like this long trough and then up, or a V-shaped recovery, sharp down, sharp back up. But you said K-shaped recovery. What does that mean? When people try to conceive of that in their mind, what should they think about? What does the K come from? I will definitely uh, answer that. It's something I've thought a lot about. I, I want to make sure to correct, if I made a misimpression, to correct it. I am not saying that mid-March is when it is is the... Uh, you know, some no, passage. no, but that's a target date that isn't. That I, is, that I'm has not giving relevance. a date. I'm not giving a date because that's not something I can do. What I what I'm telling you is that by mid March, aspects of the last fiscal plan, like enhanced unemployment benefits, uh, some of the housing things I talked about, uh, they disappear by then. So uh, that's the the reference there. In terms of all these letters, um, it 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 has to do with the the shape of the downturn and the expansion. So I think we should back up a little bit because some of this gets confusing. It becomes kind of a, an alphabet soup thing where, um, where you have an economy that's percolating along, GDP is growing, maybe unemployment's falling, you're adding lots of jobs per month. That's kind of a healthy expansion. And then some sort of a shock happens to the economy. Maybe it's an oil shock, like back in the 70s, where all of a sudden the supply of oil takes a hit. Or in this case, of course, a pandemic. Uh, last time it was the bursting of a housing bubble. What that does is it, it ends the expansion and it gives you a recession. But the question is, how deep is the recession and how long is the recession? Now, in you know my grandfather's recessions, uh, a lot that you'd have one of these economic shocks and a lot of folks would get furloughed, often from factories. They'd go home, the shock would be dealt with, it would be repaired, and they'd come back. Uh, so they were furloughed more than laid off. And that was a V-shaped uh, pattern. Went way down, went way back up pretty quickly. What we've had in recent years are uh, recoveries that have been more gradual. That has something to do with the shift from manufacturing to services. We can get into that. In the case of the pandemic, it's been really unique. I must say, I've been watching this for my whole career. I've never seen anything like this. And that's actually not that surprising when you think of how unusual this shock has been. Jared, well, let me have you take a breath uh, because I don't want to truncate this answer over the transom of a break. We've got to take our first break. So when we come back on... Segment two of the takeout with Jared Bernstein, member of the President's Economic Council. We'll get the answer to the K-shaped recovery in just a second. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment two of the takeout in just a second. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Continuing our conversation with a member of President Biden's Council of Economic Advisors. He was also the chief economic advisor to Vice President Biden during the Obama administration, Jared Bernstein. Jared, uh, continue your conversation about this K-shaped recovery yes. idea. I'm sure concept. our listeners are on the, on the edge of their seats. They're hanging. Maybe. They're hanging. Yeah. It was, it was well, a me, grabber. Yeah. Let me get to this. So in this very unusual case, 
you had a significant share of the workforce who was never hit economically in the same way that they usually are in a downturn. That doesn't mean that those of us who never missed a paycheck didn't feel the impact of this. Our, our kids often did with schooling disruptions and we're working from home. But the, the difference between someone who never missed a paycheck and people whose incomes just tanked uh, and faced unemployment, or for that matter, essential workers who often had to put themselves and their families, I shouldn't say had to, have to, continue to have to put their, their themselves and their families at great risk, they have borne the brunt of this. That's disproportionately persons of color, uh, by the way. And that, that has more of a K-shape, meaning that the upper leg of the K are people who just continue to, to do well and prosper. And the bottom leg of the K are people who continue to struggle with the, with the, uh, with the uh, um, economic impact of the pandemic. And many listeners will- In other I, words, what I described when I opened the show. Exactly. Many listeners will intuitively and correctly connect that to this decades-long inequality problem in America, which you know you know about. We should talk about it. It's something I've uh, devoted a lot of my career to writing and thinking about. But probably the best, you know, one of the best kind of um, ways to understand this, at the, just at the level of uh, almost anecdote, is we are an economy where the stock market's booming and where lines at food banks wrap around blocks for miles. And that tells you a lot about this K-shaped recovery. So one of the remedies that's in the American Rescue Plan, as I understand it, is a $15 minimum wage at the federal level by the year 2025. Negotiable or not? Well, the, the 2025 uh, uh, year phase in is the Raise the Wage Act, which has been passed by Congress before. Uh, the president has consistently been... Uh, fully committed to getting the minimum wage uh, to $15 an hour. I'm not going to sit here and say what's negotiable and what isn't because that's a, a matter for Congress. But I can tell you that I've never heard him waver from that one iota. What he has said, and I think this is important, I think some people think that when we raise the minimum wage, it goes from 725, which is the federal level now, which I suspect many listeners are thinking, are you kidding me? An essential worker, a healthcare worker, a fulfillment worker in a warehouse, someone in the... Uh, in, in, in the retail trades, getting by on that, you know, clearly that's that that's impossible in in America today. 725. It doesn't go from 725 to 15 overnight. There's a phase in period, and that's what he was referencing the other day in some comments. And that phase in period is is uh, is as I mentioned, 2025 is in the raise of the wage act, and so we'll see uh, where that lands. So we've had on this program a gentleman I think you are pretty familiar with, Ro Khanna, member of Congress from California significant member of the Progressive Caucus in the House Democrats. And he said the way to think about the minimum wage is not just the minimum wage, but we should think about it in the aftermath of the pandemic and as we continue to live through it as hazard pay. And that there is a component of redress that needs to be thought about in addition to just the economic fairness or equity involved. Your thoughts? That's a great point. No, it's a great point. I, I, I really like that uh, that emphasis because when I look through um, our policies in, in the American Rescue Plan, we actually do a lot to help workers at the bottom. We have an extension of the child tax credit, which is very well targeted to the low end and is uh, potentially can reduce child poverty by half. Of course, the checks, enhanced unemployment coverage, we've mentioned some of these things. But in my view, we can't do enough to help an essential worker who's laboring away at a wage that is either at or close to the minimum wage. There are tens of millions of such workers and I agree with uh, Representative Khanna that a great way to help them, and not just through the pandemic, although that's important, but on the other side of the pandemic, because the minimum wage continues to uh, 
to be the, the law of the land once it's increased. Um, and that's, a, that's an important connection. You know, Jared, with your experience in Washington, that one of the arbiters, not the only arbiter, but one of the arbiters is the Congressional Budget Office. And the Congressional Budget Office, as I'm sure you've seen, projects two things about the minimum wage at $15 gradually phased in. One, costing 1.4 million private sector jobs, also alleviating poverty and creating jobs. What is, in the most succinct way that you can articulate from your point of view and the administration's point of view, the overarching benefit of the raising the minimum wage to $15 and how do you deal with this talking point or CBO analysis that it will cost one and a half million private sector jobs? Yeah, that's a really great question, important question. And, and there's a number that uh, was left out of that description that needs to be in there. And that's 27 million. That is the number of workers that CBO estimates will benefit from an increase in the minimum wage to $15 an hour. 27 million. Okay, so you have to you have to consider that when you're weighing costs and benefits against the 1.4 million that you mentioned. Now, uh, I have tr tons of respect for the Congressional Budget Office. They do absolutely top shelf economic work. Um, in this case, uh, I think they underweighted some of the more recent work on the minimum wage. I know this literature well and have contributed to it myself back when I had a, a, a job where I could do research uh, uh, longer term. Um, and uh, if, if you apply some of the new estimates, which I would argue are very high quality of the, uh, of the job impacts, uh, you'll get a number closer to half of that 1.4, and you'll still stick with that 27 million people who benefit. I think it's easy to get lost in these numbers and the millions and the decimal points and forget that we have a minimum wage in this country of $7.25 an hour. It doesn't apply in every state because many states have lifted theirs, but there, there's a bunch of states that still have it. And if you are an essential worker trying to raise a family and you're making anything near that minimum wage amount, uh, you are not being well served by your country. I think that's how uh, the president views it and the president is right about that. So I want to ask you about something that I came across um, in a recent story in the Washington Post talking about millions of jobs that were lost during the pandemic are likely not to return jobs because people are going to work home at home more, that they're going to travel less for business and that automation uh, already a trend will be accelerated as it often is in times of economic downturn and retrenchment. Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, said we are recovering, but to a different economy. Uh, during the Great Recession, when you were a top economic advisor to the vice president, Biden, 52 percent in a survey then thought that they were likely to change their jobs because of the economic downturn. That number now is in excess of 67 percent. And yet in the American Rescue Plan, there's no money devoted to retraining and I've read a lot of economic literature that says that is a huge component part of how we're going to make this transition. Why isn't that money in there and when is it ever going to be proposed? So first of all, I read the article you're talking about. I thought it was, I believe it was by Heather Long in the Washington Post, or at least that's one of the articles. Mm -hmm. I read. Yes, that's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, accuse me of recentism. It was in this morning's paper. Okay. I, hey, I, I plead guilty. I plead guilty as well. And uh, one of the things I still try to do every morning is read articles by smart people like Ms. Long. Um, so first of all, we need to talk about the rescue plan, and then we need to talk about the forthcoming recovery plan. There's much less to be said about that because it's a work in progress relative to the American rescue plan. But both of them are relevant to this important question, which is something I've thought a lot about. And again, I'm going to try to be succinct. 
But one of the nice things about talking to you on this show is that we get to get to stretch out a little bit more. Yes, than usual please do. Like. Please yeah. do. Please and do. You, you and I have been having these conversations for a long time. Um, so first of all, estimates show uh, reliable estimates by um, macroeconomists who look at this very carefully without a political thumb on the scale that if we pass the American Rescue Plan, there will be 4 million more jobs at the end of this year than would otherwise occur. That the path back to a low unemployment rate, call it full employment, or the kinds of unemployment rates that existed before uh, the crisis began, we can cut that path by a year, if not longer. So there is no doubt in my mind that while these structural changes you mentioned are real, I think the magnitudes are always in question. Um, we can still, through the American Rescue Plan, get people back to work far more quickly than if we don't. And I can give you a lot of reasons why I'm sure that's true. Um, one Jared, reason- Jared, hold right there because that's uh, we're at another break and we're doing this really well. We're getting all this meat striding breaks, which is wonderful. So stay tuned for segment three of the takeout. I'm Major Garrett. Jared Bernstein is our special guest back in just a second. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Jumping right back into our conversation on structural directions of the U.S. economy with the top economic advisor to President Biden, Jared Bernstein. Jared, keep going. Yeah. So um, every time we've had one of these economic air pockets because uh, the economy is still held back by COVID-19 and yet the fiscal relief has um, expired, we've seen job growth slow significantly. So that's why the urgency of getting the uh, ARP, the rescue plan over the legislative goal line is so acute. So we don't hit another one of those air pockets and we can add 4 million more jobs than we would otherwise and pull lower unemployment forward by a year. But you ask a great question. And you know, there's this word that economists use, and it's a word I've come to hate, thanks to the, the great eco- economist Alan Blinder taught me about this. He said, whenever you hear an economist, paraphrasing, whenever you hear economists say transition, run for the hills. Uh, economists tend to wave hands and say, well, there will be a transition from this economy to that economy. It sounds good. It sounds benign. It's filled with pain, just like uh, the, the piece in, in the paper today uh, suggested and your question suggested. And in this case, there is a real responsibility for um, a a, a government that's responsive to uh, such structural economic changes to help people get to the other, not just the other side of the crisis, that's the fiscal plan, but to get to the structural changes, to help adapt to the structural changes that are coming, not just the cyclical changes, that's the rescue plan, the structural longer term changes where industries are shifting, that's the Build Back Better recovery plan. And that will be very much focused on not just getting to the other side. That's too low a bar for President uh, Biden and Vice President Harris. But to make sure that on the other side, workers have the training opportunities to get into new and expanding industries, that we're tackling the care economy deficits, that we're going after clean energy, manufacturing, infrastructure, the longer term, more permanent measures, many of which, by the way, need to be paid for. 
which is another differentiation between uh, fiscal relief and more permanent measures. That's something the president has leaned into. But that's, uh, that's coming. And uh, I'm not ready to talk about the components of that yet, but that's where your question gets fulsomely answered. $3 trillion is the projected price tag. Is that in the ballpark? We're not there yet. I'm not, not ready to talk about price tags on that. Uh, a significant part of that will be devoted to infrastructure. The uh, estimate there is $2 trillion. Again, I'm not going to go with, with top-line numbers because this is a, a work in progress. But let me tell you something that I'd actually like to run this by you. I know you're the interviewer here, but I'm going to tell you something that uh, I want to get your, your input on. It is my belief, and again, you'll have a good feel for whether, whether this is uh, an accurate belief or not, that infrastructure is something with a lot of bipartisan energy behind it. I don't just mean like bipartisan and like the American Rescue Plan is actually very popular bipartisanly in terms of across the country, mayors, governors, Democrats and Republicans, they want schools to reopen. They want the relief for businesses and families. But even in a Congress that's been characterized by you know, intense partisanship, I believe that on infrastructure, uh, this president can work with Republicans to get a plan. And the reason I believe that is because during the Trump years, Republican politicians actually would corner me and say, you know, hey, we actually want to do something on infrastructure, but we just there's nothing coming from the White House. There's no plan. That's mm -hmm. changing as we speak. I want to know, does that sound like a plausible scenario to you? Sure. For 10 years, everyone's been talking about it. And uh, it will be interesting to see what happens when it becomes clear there will be some action and who wants to get on board and who doesn't. Uh, that's always the dividing line. And the infrastructure needs are obvious. They stare every mayor, every governor in the face in every part of this country. Things are not as they should be. They're not in, as they should be in terms of the digital divide. Rural areas, they're not in t uh, where they should be in terms of ports, roads, bridges. It's all true. Everyone knows it. Uh, it's going to be the financing mechanism. Is it an infrastructure bank? Is there anything that uh, adjusts the uh, federal gasoline tax? All those mechanisms are going to have to be teased out. I think there is a will. It'll be up to the president to find a way. I think that's exactly right. And I think that uh, what's the difference here is that there was just no interest in really finding a way in the in the last administration. It's just not, no focus on that. Uh, this president has long been committed to finding a way to not just uh, do kind of traditional infrastructure, but to think about clean energy infrastructure, to think about battery technology, wind technology, to think about corning, uh, uh, trying to corner global, global market share in, mm -hmm. in key areas like battery production that, that really haven't been grabbed yet, uh, uh, as, as well as, as the more uh, traditional types of infrastructure. You mentioned uh, alternate forms of energy. There is a debate going on right now, as you have seen in the headlines, Jared, and there are stories this morning on Bloomberg and elsewhere that the ripples in Texas because of the cold snap and the power surge, plus the shutting down of oil is going to create a ripple in global markets. There's also this sort of sep se separate snarky conversation about, well, when uh, wind turbines freeze, guess what you need? You need a fossil fuel powered helicopter to spray a fossil fuel substance on them to unstick them. And so that proves that fossil fuels have to continue to be part of the energy grid, not just in Texas, but nationwide. You can't go to 100% renewables because they're not as constant as they need to be. Uh, your thoughts on all that? Well, one of the things that I try to be very careful about, especially in this job, 
is getting too deep into uh, the diagnosis of a ongoing crisis as it's happening. I, I think that what's going on in Texas is raising as many questions as there are answers. I do believe that Texas gets only 10% of its energy from renewables. So clearly this can't just be about, uh, about wind turbines. Um, and of course, there are really important questions about the uh, independence of that grid and its lack of connectivity to uh, other grids in other parts of the country. I think probably the better way to, at least for me, to think about and talk about that is in terms of the absolute uh, elevation uh, to a degree that I think we've never seen of uh, the clean energy in this uh, the clean energy agenda in this administration. Um, you know, during the campaign, there was this sort of exchange. I know it was very catchy and campaign line uh, uh, style, but it actually meant something, which is where Trump says, "When I, uh, you know, he 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 believes global or when he hears climate change, he thinks hoax." When Biden hears climate change, he thinks jobs. I think one of the most destructive and false economic memes, if I'm using the word correctly, is that somehow a clean energy agenda is not a jobs agenda, is, 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 uh, is not consistent with a jobs agenda. That couldn't be more wrong. Uh, not only is there, uh, is there considerable employment in um, building out our clean energy infrastructure, uh, but those can be very good jobs. This gets back to your point uh, about helping people move from sectors that are declining to sectors that are increasing. Uh, that's something that's, uh, that's going to happen. And interestingly, and here's where I, uh, I think there hasn't been enough attention to this aspect of the clean energy agenda. I've been in government when we were kind of pushing against the market in terms of, of, of getting a clean energy uh, agenda launched. Now I feel very, very strongly that we're moving with the market, that the market is moving there anyway. GM but and Ford. GM and Ford is the perfect example. So our, our measures now are putting wind in the sails of, of a market dynamic that is already evolving. So we can hasten that, uh, uh, that uh, we can hasten that, that shift and we can make sure that workers are ready to take advantage of it. That is a high I, priority of the Biden administration. As I understand the Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers on this, Jared, correct me if I'm wrong, there are more Americans employed as solar panel installers than there are in coal mines. I don't know that number, but it wouldn't surprise me, but it's exactly the kind of, it's a microcosm of what I'm talking about. So uh, we're going to come up on another break, and I don't want to throw another big piece of economic stake right in front of you and start having you carve it up and having you interrupt you in the middle of it. But two things I want you to think about, and we're going to talk about them on the other side of the break. Actually, three. Now I'm hungry. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so uh, Tuesday, New York Times front page headline, inflation fears fall by wayside in Biden era. I want you to talk about that. Bring it. Plus deficits, debt. What do they mean, if anything, in the Biden administration? Great all talk. those answers, all Great those talk. answers on the other side of the break. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment four of The Takeout in just a second. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. 
Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Continuing our conversation about the current U.S. economy and its future with a very important member of President Biden's Council of Economic Advisors. He is not the chair, but he's an important member. He was an advisor to Vice President Biden during the Obama administration, Jared Bernstein. Jared, uh, inflation fears fall by the wayside in the Biden era. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Inflation's not a thing. Even though Larry Summers, who used to work alongside in the Obama administration, is a bit concerned about that. So first of all, uh, and, and Larry, I'm a, not trying to get you in a fight with Larry Summers. I'm not uh, trying to do that. Larry's a, 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 a good old friend of mine and someone I have tremendous respect for. We disagree on this. One thing that Larry got wrong in his original piece on this is this idea that somehow the administration isn't looking at this or concerned about it or cares about it. Obviously, any economics team has to worry about uh, uh, risks uh, from wherever they uh, wherever they come. And uh, what Larry talked about is an overheating risk, which I'll get into. I think the key thing here is when you're looking at 10 million people unemployed, close to 11 million jobs down from where we were, you know, unemployment for persons of color at 9% uh, for, for Blacks and Hispanics, um, 4 million people stuck in long-term unemployment, uh, 2 million women out of the labor market, not even looking for work relative to last year, because in many cases, they're stuck with care responsibilities, schools closed, the, the, the virus still not controlled, and the vaccine still not uh, fully distributed. The risks of doing too much uh, are much smaller than the risks of doing uh, too little. The risk and you, you and you have lived experience on this, don't, don't you? Don't you? Correct. The, the risk, in the rear view, don't you look back at the Recovery Act for President Obama? Yes, it inflicted a political cost. It created the Tea Party, whatever. But you look back on it in the rear view economically and say it was too small. I think that there is a history of going too small. And the president has very much, say, maybe even use these words, go big or go home, because we need to deal this virus, the knockout blow that has heretofore not occurred on behalf of the American people, their businesses, all those millions of people who are essential workers, people in communities of color who've been disproportionately hit by this. But that doesn't mean that we can ignore inflationary concerns. So let me get a tiny bit technical as to where I disagree with Larry's analysis and, and others. He's not the only one who's, who's warned about this. First of all, I think they underestimate the capacity of the economy. I think they underestimate how much economic um, uh, capacity is underutilized right now. Remember, if you think of the economy as a glass of water, what, what, what Larry's worrying about is that we're pouring too much water in the glass and it's going to overflow. The spillage there represents inflation as opposed to jobs and incomes and housing and nutritional support. Our view is that the glass has a, a lot of room to fill for people who have been hit hardest by this. And so the first disagreement we have is about capacity. Now, inflation in this country has been below, the Fed targets 2% inflation, Federal Reserve, that's one of their jobs to monitor this. Inflation in, in this country has been below target for over 10 years. So we've actually been running under capacity by that particular metric for a very long time. So while nobody knows accurately the extent of the economy's capacity, my view is that many of the overheating folks are really underestimating just how much capacity is out there. Secondly, now, 
Yeah, but also it seems to me that there are many vestiges of the 70s we've left behind, disco being one of them, (laughs) and uh, leisure suits. But it also seems like, in a structural sense and in a literature sense, the obsession about, if I could call it that, inflation, has ignored or underappreciated wage disparity and other structural things that have pulled the economy apart. And the inflation emphasis has come at the expense of this other thing, which is a much, it seems to me, much deeper part yeah. of the economic problems of our country. Yeah. So, and with, you know, with respect to Larry, I don't think that he's been, you know, particularly obsessive about inflation. In fact, he's talked a lot about what you just said, he, 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 about how stagnant uh, the economy has been, even in, even in recoveries and expansions. I think his concern is that we're pouring too much water in the glass and it's going to spill over. Um, and, and I think uh, not only is that wrong for the reasons I was giving before about capacity and the fact that um, everyone has um, you know, just really overestimated these kinds of inflation or interest rate pressures that gets into your deficit debt question in a minute, which we'll get into in a minute. Uh, everyone has really overestimated those pressures for a very long time. We're going to be very watchful of it. Uh, but at, at the same time, I think you have to recognize that people very much need this relief. They need this cushion. And uh, while we may see some price pressures going forward, I suspect we will, you have to differentiate between heat and overheat. Uh, the American Rescue Plan will add some much needed heat to this, uh, to this economy. Uh, I don't believe it will lead to overheating. I think that risk is far smaller than the risk of not doing enough to vanquish the virus and provide people the help they need. If, uh, if, if, if the inflation rate starts to rise more quickly than the Fed is comfortable with, they have lots of ammunition uh, to deal with that. Uh, but uh, I think the risks of going uh, too big are far smaller than the risks of going too small. So deficit federal level 2023.13 trillion dollars, double the previous record achieved in a year you well remember, 2009. Current debt load in the country, $27 trillion, all but $6 trillion of that owned by the public. Uh, what are the implications of those two things? And the rescue plan would add to that by a factor of $2 trillion. Um, and the recovery or build back better, if at $2 trillion or $3 trillion, would add even more. Problems or not? Well, first of all, just to uh, add a, uh, a fact here is that you know the president has talked about offsetting the cost of permanent measures. Uh, So now if we're talking about the recovery plan, he's consistently, since the campaign, talked about a very progressive tax agenda. Taxes wouldn't go up for anyone under 400,000 to help offset the costs of the more permanent measures, as you'd see in the recovery plan, uh, by by, um, uh, taxing uh, those who've uh, uh, accrued the, the lion's share of the wealth in the corporate sector. Now, deficits and debt. This is another area like inflation where you have to be very mindful of the risks that are involved when you're doing what has to be done here, which is passing and deficit financing uh, the American Rescue Plan. However, what economic uh, analysis shows, and this has been, I think, a real evolution in some of our understanding of public finance over the last Uh, 10 years or so, is that what we worried about most in accumulating debt and deficits was something called crowd out, private sector crowd out. This was the idea that public borrowing would compete with private borrowing 
And that competition would push up interest rates and lead to slower growth. We have not seen this kind of crowd out occur. To the contrary, we're looking at interest rates that are at historical lows. Therefore, while I understand your citation of the large debt numbers and you know 100% of GDP, I get that. It's important. I'm not dismissing it. What really matters right now is what it costs to service that debt, debt service costs. And that is historically very low because interest rates are so low. What that's basically telling us is this is an economy with both cyclical and structural shortfalls. In the cyclical sense, it's an economy uh, where the unemployment rate is still highly elevated, 6.3% overall, 9% for Blacks and Hispanics. So it's an economy that is cyclically weak. And that's where the American Rescue Plan fills in, 4 million more jobs a year sooner getting to full employment. Structurally, we need to make the kinds of investments I talked about earlier from the Building Back Better agenda, both in worker training, in education, in clean energy, in the care economy, uh, in racial equity. Uh, many of those will be paid for, as I mentioned. Uh, but that's also uh, part of the agenda in getting this economy back on track. And what those low interest rates and inflation rates are telling us is that there's no crowd out in sight. And in fact, if you look at those metrics, they're screaming, basically get to work and, 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 and start to repair these, these problems in the economy. That is the voice of Jared Bernstein, who is a significantly important member of President Biden's Council of Economic Advisors. For our radio audience, we have to say farewell. Thanks for joining us. Be back again next week. And for those on CBSN and on our podcast platform, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Continuing our conversation with Jared Bernstein. He's a member of President Biden's Council of Economic Advisors and a mighty important one as well. Uh, Jared, this is the fun and games portion of our program. I'll get to the fun and games questions in just a second. But just one other thing I want to ask you. Uh, what is work life like in the White House and across the street at the executive, Eisenhower Executive Office Building? Is that a microcosm of shifts going on in the American workplace in that many people are working from home in ways that they wouldn't have under normal circumstances? I think it is. I think it is. And it's quite different um, from my last experience in the White House where when, when I was uh, Vice President Biden's chief economist, um, many, uh, uh, all of our meetings uh, take place uh, on Zoom. Um, and uh Although we have met with uh, the president and vice president in, in, in the Oval Office a few times, and that's uh, in person. But for those meetings, um, you have to get, of course, uh, tested uh, that day. And uh, masks are always worn. So we're very careful, as, as you might imagine. Um, I think that we've been able, <laughs> I mean, I think if you look at what we've been doing, I'm not patting us on the back or anything. It's just that we've been able to to really do our work and get a lot of work done. And we're working you know, really very aggressively um, at all hours of day and night. Uh, so it hasn't really stopped us from doing what, what it has to be done. But I miss being in, you know, the Roosevelt Room with all of my colleagues and the president and vice president sitting there and, you know, reading body language and uh, just kind of interacting with folks. I definitely miss that. And, and, and I, we, we go in, we go in, as I've mentioned sometimes, um, but even when we go in, we tend to do uh, our meetings uh, on on uh, remotely. 
Interesting. And um, the fun and games portion runs like this. Uh, we have three questions. We've asked every single guest on the show. We're now in our fifth year. Our audience loves the answers because they're a little bit revealing about the personal side of our particular guests. So in no particular order, most influential book in your life, all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies. And if you're going to indulge yourself musically, meaning going to something on your ear, earphones or headphones or earbuds that are really, really great, uh, what kind of music, artist or genre are you most likely to listen to? Um, wow. Okay. Uh, so I had no warning about these. This is off the top of my head, which is probably what you planned. Um, I, you know, the music is actually the easy part because I spent a lot of yesterday doing data work. And sometimes when I do data work, I can listen to music. And I was listening to the music of Monty Alexander. Monty Alexander is a Jamaican-born jazz pianist who fuses jazz and reggae in a way that just, uh, just rocks my soul. So I love that. Um, in terms of the most influential book, again, I'm going to have to, this is, okay, this is maybe one of the nerdiest things anyone's ever said on your show. Uh, I have to say right now, because I'm reading this again, it's Probability and Statistics by Morris DeGroot. <laughs> this is a textbook. <laughs> First <and> mention. <laughs> this is a textbook. Um, and it just is reminding me of how vitally important probabilistic thinking is, as opposed to one zero thinking as opposed to being knocked around by confirmation bias as opposed to mistaking things that happen as inevitable instead of a um being pulled out of a, a out of a kind of knowable probability distribution and then move did you ask about movies is that the third yeah thing? movies yeah uh for movie for some reason i don't know why this just popped into my head when you said that uh, one floor where the cuckoo's nest mm. um that was a book I read by Ken Gizzi. And then yeah. um, I recently re-saw re the movie and I, I found it, you know, just it just moves me uh, for, for, for some reason. I'm sure I'm not the only one. Oh, it's a, it's a brilliant book and a phenomenal movie um, that launched many careers. Mm -hmm. And um, a guest on our show, Gary Goldman, who is a stand-up comic uh, who has suffered and spoken very eloquently about depression – talked about on our show that the scene in that movie, the electroshock therapy thing, uh, has this ghoulish aspect around it because of that movie. And that therapy has become much more advanced now. It's much more precise, much more low wattage, and extremely helpful in certain mm -hmm. cases. Gary's chief among them. And he speaks wow. quite honestly and openly about that. Mm -hmm. And he has a phenomenal HBO special called The Great Depression, a stand-up routine built around his journey through depression. He got off the circuit for a while and had to mend himself. And he reaches back to that movie like that's what people think about. It, and I keep trying to tell them it's something different. But it's an incredibly powerful movie on a lot of different levels. But uh, Gary was a, a brilliant and lovely guest on our program talking about that. Well, you know, um, I am a huge fan of stand-up comedy and I pay a lot of attention to it. And I have noticed that uh, when you listen to some uh, comics talk about their lives, that's not that uncommon for folks in that occupation. <laughs> not at all, because you're out there. You're out there and you've got to live in this place of constant performance and then you got to withdraw from it. And uh, there, 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 there's turbulence involved in it. And Gary's incredibly articulate and beautiful about yeah, that. Yeah. Jared, uh, great pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. Uh, thanks for the knowledge. And uh, we'll keep in touch. Great talking to you. Really enjoyed it. Take care. Folks, we'll see you again next week on The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett. See ya. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. 
CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Plus.